0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, we are going to get into the preaching of God's word, and so open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. While you are turning there, I want to thank John for preaching last Sunday. I was away, and every time I am away, I experience really two conflicting emotions, especially on Sunday mornings. Uh, the first is gratefulness for some rest. I need that from time to time. It's good for me. second, though, is I miss you, and, and I can thank God for both. I really can. It was good to be away, and I'm really, really glad to be back. So this morning, we are going to be in verses 24 through 29 of Colossians chapter 1. And and when I was originally planning to preach through this letter to the Colossians, uh, these were some of the verses that I was most excited to preach. This happens a lot, actually. So when I started really digging in, though, this week, I, I kind of panicked because there just wasn't any kind of obvious structure that, that jumped out to me. And when I, when I approach a, a passage of the Bible to get ready to preach it, the first question I'm asking is always, what's, what's the big idea? What's the main point of whatever we're going to study together? My second question kind of quickly follows after that, how is the writer going to get there? What's the main point, and how is the writer driving that home? So outline and structure are really important, and it took me a little while this week to to find a path through this. And and for the record, I I think this is a common experience at the end of Colossians chapter 1. Because as you read Bible scholars, they're kind of all over the place with how we navigate this. But I have come up with something that I think makes sense and I hope will be helpful to us. I I think in threes, so much of what I do comes out that way. I'm just always kind of a trifecta kind of a guy. And so here is how we're going to approach this passage this morning. Just under three headings. Number one, heading number one, Christians may suffer. Heading number two. Christians need Christ. And number three, Christians gain glory. Christians may suffer. We need Christ, but we get glory. So this isn't going to be as linear as some passages are but I think all of this is there. And before we begin just reading this, and then I'll read it in one big chunk, I want to do a little bit of of deconstructing and rebuilding, especially in the area of suffering. So suffering is a big part of the Apostle Paul who wrote Colossians. It's a big part of his teaching for at least two reasons, maybe maybe a third. Uh, Reason number one is Christ suffered. Jesus Christ suffered, and part of following him, a promise of following him, is that his followers would suffer too. So that's the example that we follow in Christ. A second reason, number two, that Paul wrote about suffering is that he himself suffered quite a bit for his faith in Christ and on his gospel mission, he regularly suffered. Then there is a third reason why it's important to talk about suffering and is that we need to be prepared for suffering as Christians So that when suffering comes, we don't see that as as a challenge to our faith, but a confirmation of it. Part of the reason Colossians as a letter was written was to confront false ideas and to establish truth in this relatively new church. And this still happens today today that there are some false teachers who will promise increase and prosperity in response to faith in Jesus, but that's not often what happens. Sometimes, oftentimes, actually, it's just the opposite. This is especially true in in other parts of the world. It's the reason it's important to be a global Christian. There are places in our world today, dangerous places, where putting your faith in Christ means making yourself a target. Not just for ridicule or being socially ostracized, but you become a target for violence, even all the way to the point of death. And that's actually a good place for us to start when we talk about suffering, because much of what we, what we are talking about starts with Paul, who is a man who at one point was obsessed with making Christians suffer, but now he is suffering himself for Christ and his church. He was once a persecutor of Christians. Now he endures much persecution, all with joy for the sake of the gospel. So turn your attention now to Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and listen as I read. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So Christians may suffer. There's a phrase here in verse 24 that is among the most difficult to understand in in any of Paul's letters, and and that's saying something because there are plenty of confusing phrases. He says he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake, and in his flesh he is, and here's the phrase, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does Paul mean then when he says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's a confusing group of words. It's a confusing turn of phrase. There are a few answers that have been given to that question. What does it mean? But let's just first eliminate the one that would lead us into a great amount of trouble. Paul does not mean that something about the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross was insufficient to solve the human sin problem. In the next chapter of this letter, Paul says that God canceled the record of our sin debt by nailing it, nailing Christ to the cross, and that the cross was not a moment of defeat, but was instead a moment of triumph. So Paul cannot mean something more is necessary through Christ's suffering. He must mean something else. Now the verb, the original language, Greek, translated fill up, that's unique in the New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. But there is a close parallel to what Paul is saying about something lacking in Christ's afflictions that gives us some really good insight into this. So there's another letter that Paul wrote, Philippians, to the Philippian church. And in that letter, he, wrote, he writes about a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a friend of the Philippians and a companion to Paul. Paul was in jail, kind of under a house arrest, and the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to encourage Paul And then they sent him money to supply his needs. And so uh, here's the picture. We still do this today. When someone you know and love is suffering, we, at least hopefully, have an inclination to enter into that suffering with them in, in some small way. So I hear this a lot as a pastor. It's, it's a blessing. So people say, I wish I could do more, but I am praying for you. And, and let's be clear, prayer is no small thing. I'm going to pray for you because I want to enter into the suffering with you, and I want to lift you up. I want to bring you before God. Or they do, do practical things. They say, can I you know, bring a meal over so you don't have to worry about cooking dinner tonight? in the midst of what you're going through. Can I come over and can I do some yard work for you? Can I come over and clean the house? Can I come over and do something for you? Some people have a great gift for just writing a card, sending a small little token along with that. And the point isn't that when we tell somebody that we're praying for them, or when we send a casserole, that it removes the suffering that our loved one is going through doesn't make it better but it does communicate that we're with them it communicates that we're thinking of them that we remember them and we want to in some way some small way enter into their suffering with them and so the Philippians sent Epaphroditus so Paul would know that they are with him in some sense in his suffering so they said Epaphroditus take this money And go to Paul and give him our love. We love Paul. We want him to have what he needs. Tell him we're praying for him. Tell him we love him. And what happens is somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus gets really sick, close to dying. But he's healed, comes to Paul. Paul receives what he brought, and he's now sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians to say thank you. And this is what Paul writes about the, the, this exchange. This is what he, he says, Epaphroditus is coming back, end of Philippians 2. So receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The phrase that helps us here in Colossians is Paul saying that Epaphroditus was able to complete something that had been lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul. What was lacking in their service was not love, it wasn't money, it was not heart. It's simply this the Philippians couldn't be face to face with Paul. So they sent someone who could. So Epaphroditus comes on behalf of the Philippians. And now to all the Philippians, Paul is grateful. And the same way he's sending Epaphroditus back saying, I can't come myself. I'm under arrest. I'm in jail. I wish I could because I love you. And I want you to know how meaningful your friendship is to me. But know that when Epaphroditus gets there, he's coming on behalf of me and he's bringing my love. Now, Paul is saying he's doing that same thing for the Colossians. Jesus loves the Colossians. Jesus died for them. He ascended to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now day and night he intercedes for them. He sent the Holy Spirit to be their counselor, and so that they might understand the riches and the beauty of the gospel, God Christ sent missionaries and evangelists and teachers to help mature the Colossians in their faith. But the one thing that is lacking is that Jesus is no longer there himself. And although we might think of lacking, the word lacking meaning something like missing or something being second best, That's not actually the case here. Shortly before his death on the cross, Jesus told his followers that he was going to leave soon. But once he was gone, he would send the Holy Spirit so every one of his followers could be empowered to do the kind of work that he was doing. God's plan to reach the world was for Jesus to go, for the Holy Spirit to come, and then for the church to be sent out in the power of the Spirit. You and I are God's plan to spread the hope of the gospel in the world. And this is why Paul can say he rejoiced in his sufferings and was able to make up something that was lacking. Because of his sufferings, because of his filling with the Spirit, because of God's call on his life, he was able to do for the Colossians what Christ himself would have done for the Colossians if he was still here on earth. And you and I can do the same thing. Sometimes I, I hear people talk about their ministry saying, I want to be Jesus to them. And that's exactly Right. It's exactly what we should do. Now, we don't mean that we're, in a sense, going to be the penal substitution for somebody. But it's certainly accurate, it is accurate, to believe that we can do for a person what Jesus would have done for them. For our friends, for our neighbors, for our family, we can do what Jesus would have done for them if he were here, still on earth. We only need to recognize one really important truism of gospel ministry. We see it in Paul's sufferings. We see it in the ministry of Christ. The gospel is spread always through giving, through sacrifice, and often through suffering. The gospel is never spread through taking and holding. If you want to follow Jesus and love like Jesus and be like Jesus to people, the way he did that was laying down his life for people. He gave his life. And he gave his life not just for good people, he, gave his, he didn't give his life just for people who were a lot like him. He gave his life for people who were nothing like him. And he gave his life for people who at one point hated him. So what Paul is making up that is lacking is not the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. It's that though Christ is alive and well in heaven, he is not here on earth, but the church has been empowered to go and to be Christ to people. And that will often come. In fact, it must come through suffering. I, I gave this subpoint the title Christians May Suffer. Thinking now that it should have been Christians will suffer. For the sake of Christ. Christ suffered for us, we will suffer for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it's a little like this, though a little less though a little less succinct. If you've never suffered anything for anyone else, I'm not sure you're doing it quite right. Not as succinct. But if you've never suffered anything for Jesus, if you've never suffered anything for anyone else, I doubt you're doing it right. Today is a day we call Halloween. Uh, that's a derivative of a day long ago that was once called All Hallows Eve. It's the day before All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. Historically, All Saints Day is the day set aside to remember martyrs throughout the history of the church. These are men and women who have died for their faith in Christ, for preaching the gospel, for delivering our faith in some way to future generations. Now, Christ suffered and died for sin, and the atonement was finished. But that doesn't mean there isn't still more sacrifice necessary for the advance of the gospel. And Paul was pleased to use his life so that more and more people might know and be strengthened in Christ. in church, if we are at all serious about our faith in Christ, we should want the very same thing. We should consider it a joy to suffer for the sake of Christ so that others may know. And this actually sweeps right into our second point, that Christians need Christ. Because if you don't believe that you have a moment-by-moment dependence on Jesus, none of this is going to make any sense to you. For me to say Christians must sacrifice and Christians must give away our lives, and to be a Christian means that you'll probably add suffering to your life in some way. If you don't believe that Jesus is everything, why would you want to sign up for that? What in any way about that is appealing to you? Paul knows this. It's why he says that this is a mystery hidden for generations, but now the true purpose is being revealed. And who's it being revealed to? Look at the end of verse 26. Who is the mystery revealed to? End of verse 26 says it's to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Just gonna skip over the next two phrases for just a minute and ask this question. How is the mystery made less mysterious? How does this work? Verse 28 is the answer to that. Him we proclaim. We warn everyone, we teach everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The answer to a person's search for meaning isn't in education or in income or status or raising children and and passing an inheritance on. The answer to the mystery of of why life exists, of why you are here, is found in Jesus. If you're trying to build your life on anything else, it won't last. And remember, this, this letter was written to people who were already Christians, but their faith was being challenged. Nothing was more pressing to Paul in every area of his life than making sure every lit little bit of a Christian's life was about Christ. Can I tell you what scares me most? about the current state of Christianity in America. It's not so-called threats to the church. It's not government or courts. It's not New Age philosophy or atheism. What scares me most about Christianity in America is how common it seems for many men and women who claim to be Christians, but they live as though Jesus is just one part of a nice, comfortable, respectable life. Because if Christianity and following Christ is just one aspect of kind of their hopes and dreams. But there's lots of other things that are also built in there. This is what Colossians is all about. If Jesus isn't first to you, you need to be warned. Warning everyone. And I don't, I don't just mean first on Sunday mornings. He alone has the power to save. Only by knowing him can you know God. If I could just be really blunt for a minute. I know some of you are saying, well, now you're going to get blunt. Yeah, now I'm going to get blunt. A Christianity where Jesus is just one facet of your life something we do sometimes, but we don't want to be seen as too different. We don't want to stand out as too strange. We don't want to be labeled somebody too radical. That sounds an awful lot like a Christianity the devil would have us practice. Not a Christianity that the God who sent his one and only son to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God would want. Everyone needs Christ. Christians need Christ, non-Christians need Christ, but this is a letter to people who already believed in Christ. So I'm saying for us as Christians, we need an ever-increasing dependence on him. And where that isn't present... Church, be warned. Church, be careful. Be very, very cautious. Third point, Christians gain glory. So how do we depend more on Jesus? It's one of the many things that I love about the gospel. So look back, I, I skipped over some words at the end of verse 27. And then look a little bit at verse 29. Verse 27 There is a glorious mystery that is revealed and the revelation is that Christ is in you. And because of that, you have the hope of glory. And then jump down to verse 29. Look at the unexpected way Paul says this. He says, first, for this I, Paul, for this I toil. So it's his work, but look at the the way the next part comes. For this I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you're thinking, we're talking about Christians needing to suffer for the sake of Christ, but I don't have the strength to suffer. I think that I'll shrink back. I think that I'll shrivel up if challenged. If you're saying, I want to live in such a way that Jesus is my all, but I just, I don't know how. This is yet, and take heart, this is yet another place where God is so good and so gracious to us because he comes, and and in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of wondering whether or not we will measure up, he, he will come and he will say, just like you don't need to create yourself, just like you don't need to sustain yourself, just like you don't need to save yourself, I did those things, And now, I want you to know that I won't leave you on your own to figure out how you live on to glory either. God will do that in you as well. If you wonder, how do I endure? How do I persevere on to glory? You do it the same way that you came to God. By grace, by the power of Christ, and by living in faith. And how does he persevere us? So how does perseverance actively work in the life of the Christian? Let me just give you two ways to concentrate on. Two ways that God is at work in endurance. First, he gives us the promise of glory. We have the promise of glory. Have you ever wondered where where the strength to do something hard would come from? And then you caught a vision of what things could be like if you did what was really hard and it gave you more strength. Uh, Holly and I, my wife Holly and I, went through an uncertain number of years where we were just questioning if we would have more children in our family. And, And when we decided to adopt, we just wondered how all of that would come together. Uh, Adoption is way too expensive, and the process takes too long, and it's like entirely out of your hands. You're just along for the ride in adoption. But God gives us, but God gave us a desire for it. gave us a desire to bring another child into our family, and so we prayed. A lot of you prayed with us. Thank you. And God provided. And we couldn't imagine our our, our family without our youngest daughter. It was hard, but God gave us a vision. And we felt like he, he gave us a promise that he was going to do this. And so we trusted him and we walked by faith. If you're sitting there and you're wondering how you could ever endure what's before you. For some of you, something immediately comes to mind. There's something that you are in the midst of enduring right now. And for some of you, it will come, but you don't even know what it is yet. If you're wondering how you can endure what is before you, let the promise that God has made you will gain glory through faith in Jesus, remind you, secure you, and bind you steadfastly to him. If God can promise that, that Christ will be in you, and that is you have the hope of glory, you can believe that surely he'll add goodness on top of that. That surely he will do good for you in addition to that. So that's the first thing. He gives us the promise of glory. And the second way he helps us on to glory is that we do have the presence of Christ. The promise of glory in the presence of Christ. Verse 27. The riches of the mystery now revealed is that Christ is in us. Remember we read in verse 29, Christ powerfully works for Paul within him and he can powerfully work within you if you have repented of your sin and you've called on the name of Christ, you have a champion that lives within you that not only has overcome the things of this world, but this letter in chapter 2, verse 15, says that Christ has disarmed all evil rulers and authorities, and he has put them to open, visible shame. And he is with you always. When you fight temptation, he is there, willing to give you all the endurance and faith to overcome whatever is tempting you. When you're being told lies, Like you're not good enough, you don't measure up, you're not worth it, he is reminding you that he thinks so highly of you that he died so that you might live and you are very pleasing in his sight. And when you sin, church, when you sin, he is there to receive your confession to forgive you and to make sure you remember forever that he took your place in punishment so that you could join him in unending life. That is Christ, the hope of glory in you. And so when you are tempted, run to Christ. When you are beaten down, lift your gaze up to him. When you fear it's all coming apart, know that he doesn't even expect you to reach him. He reaches you. You have Christ in you. Your hope is secure. Glory is yours. Your life is hidden, wrapped up, held by him. So make your discipleship be dependent on him every day. Let's pray together. Thank you for Christ, God, who is in us. If We have repented of our sin, trusted in this name. May these precious saints, now this mystery has been delivered to them Illuminated for them. And now they have hold of it to such a degree that the only way to really describe it is to say it has been placed within them. And may you do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine because you are in us. in the beautiful name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.